1: nine you're listening to 3RR102.7 or you might be streaming via your web. The show is Radio Marinara. My name is Dr. Beach. I'm Doctor Surf.
0: How are you surf? I'm good. I've had some great waves the last few weeks. That's good to hear. So I'm a bit tired, but that's good. You're looking well. Yeah I'm not too bad. It's just you and me today. It is. Yeah, Bron's no. been suspended again.
1: She has, for Con- all, all that bad language on air. Conduct unbecoming. Yeah. She's like the Luke Hodge of Triple R. That's right. She she's goes hard. A, she's had a
0: three-week suspension. <laughs> no, she hasn't. She'll be back with us next week. She will. Anyway, yeah. we've got a, a busy show in her absence. Well, yeah, it's not too busy. It's not frantic. No. Yeah. That's that's why we're happy. <laughs> that's right. Just- Crazy Sunday morning with Triple R. Yeah, we're going to be talking about seagrasses with
1: um, Tim Smith, who's kindly joined us from Warrnambool, from the Deakin campus at Warrnambool. He's going to be talking about a recent study which has been done by him and a few other people looking at the health of seagrasses in Port Phillip Bay. And I just want to tell you now that's a very interesting
0: Chilean connection. We have a lot of seagrasses down our way. Your way being the Mornington Peninsula? Western Port. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them have been washed up lately with these big
1: swells we've been having. Uh, yeah, you said this. Um, well, before we get on to what's been happening with the swells and perhaps some damage to our beaches. Mm. Um, second, we're going to have Captain Windshift, a.k.a. Steve Howden, our um, sailing correspondent from the Port Melbourne Yacht Club. He is not coming into the studio. He's going to be on the blower from Brighton Way telling us about a women's regatta, which is on... Saturday. Well, it's actually a women's skippers regatta where they've got lots of girls out there captaining ships. And we're going to hear about that. And we're lucky we might actually be able to talk to one of those captains. Mm, lovely day for it. Very light wind, though. Uh, it is, yes. Mm. And then, Surf, you're going to tell us about Surf. I found
0: an interesting article um, uh, during the week on how Surf Forecasting was uh, founded during World War II. Oh, yeah. As with a lot of things. Um, adversity cre- created creativity, if you could say it like that. And uh, there's an interesting story from Scripps Institute that I know you're aware of in La Jolla, La Jolla. La Jolla in California. California. And that's where surf forecasting was um, founded. Oh, well, I'm looking forward to this. And um, it's a very interesting story. So um, a lot of surfers out there, we rely on surf for- forecasting now pretty much revolve our lives around them because they're so accurate but I just thought it'd be interesting to discuss where did it all start over 70 years ago. Well that's, I've got lots of questions for you but I
1: will save those to the last segment so that'll be at about 20 to 10 if anyone's interested in hanging around for that. Um, a little bit of
0: weather before we get into some news. Yep today is going to be a beautiful day top of 16 and we're going to have light winds mainly coming out and it doesn't say any age but my guess is northeast a while. There might be a slight sea breeze, but really, sea breezes are quite rare this time of the year. So, very good surf conditions. All around the bay and the peninsula. a bit of swell, but it's dropping off. The beaches should have good waves this afternoon on Phillip Island and um, Mornington Peninsula. There'll be some nice waves down the west coast, but because there's a bit of east in the wind, it'll be the beach breaks down there rather than the points. But um, yeah, lovely day. Tomorrow, we're looking at a top of 17, he said, rattling the papers. Similar day, Tuesday 18, but there's a change coming, which is what we want. Okay.
1: Speaking of weather, you said, um, you mentioned just before that there's, well, there has been a little bit of wild weather around in the last couple of weeks, and there's been a bit of damage, a bit of coastal damage?
0: There was, and it was more to do with um, a combination of extremely high tide. We had a high tide of 1.75 to 1.8, which is very high, and a very large swell, and it's stripped quite a lot of the beach away. Even in within Western Port Bay, we've lost quite a bit of beach. And I took the... What, down around Gunnamatta, Point Leo? Uh, yeah, there's bad losses there, but even in around Shoreham, Point Leo. And between Point Leo and um, Merrick's, I took the surf doggies for a walk there the other day, and there's a stretch of beach if you get to Point Leo and turn left. Beautiful walk. Around Merrick's, and there's some very large fully mature banksia trees that have come down because the tides just come in and washed underneath them. So a combination of very high tides with big swells. Big swells, yeah. It's not, not unusual, but really it's... I mean, we're losing beaches that we've never lost before. So it's global warming and sea rise, sea level rise, right before our eyes. And we're just losing... Really? What's the global warming of, connection? Bits after bits. I'm not going into that. <laughs> the sea level has risen. <laughs> and... I'm not a sceptic, as you know, but I'm just wondering <laughs> about the connection. You, you, you're just throwing it out there, aren't you? I That's am. Right, well, look, the sea levels are coming up and something's causing it and it's causing pretty heavy erosion. But when we get that erosion, often... I mean, I can remember from my you know, childhood, which
1: was a very long time ago, of course, that you'd see this sometimes, but then you know, it would come back in another season. There'd be combinations of environmental factors which would rejuvenate the beach a little bit. Am I fantasising there? Am I imagining I things? I don't see that happening
0: anymore. I see, right. you, you lose a bit during winter and that's your high tide mark. You lose a little bit more next winter, that's your new high tide mark. It's, and, and the thing that's really distressing is there are areas where there are mature, like the banksia trees that are toppled, they'd be 50, 60, 70 years old. But so, so the sea's getting up to where they were, right. they were growing and toppling them down. Yeah, so you're not going to get those back. In They're not going to come back. And so the vegetation's going, which is really quite distressing. But really, what can we do? We can look at it and... Tony Soprano would say, what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm well into the Sopranos second time around at the
1: moment. So, yeah. Um, another bit of news this week. Of course, many people would be aware that the Group Australian for Dolphins has pressured um, the, uh, what is it? It's it's the Waza, which is the World Association of Zoos and Aquaria, to put pressure on JASA, which is the Japanese Association of Zoos and Aquaria, to suppress or to stop the um well at least to ban japanese aquaria from taking dolphins from the taiji massacre um i'm not going to mention any more about this now because i can safely say that we are going to have a representative from australia for dolphins on next week bron has secured that so i'm looking forward very much to being in the studio as i will be next week and talking with bron to those people Hmm. yeah look forward to that so do i yeah. Sea moving grass. on. <laughs> yeah, moving on to seagrasses. Seagrasses are fascinating things. They are flowering plants, which we have growing in the marine environment and um, near shore areas. We know many people, many of our listeners will be familiar with the fact that they are important nurseries for small fish when they're up around the, the north of the country, which we do have a lot of them up there. They're important habitats for dugong and other sorts of animals. Seagrasses are very important and they do go through periods of being damaged and then coming back. We have a lot of them in Port Phillip Bay, also in Western Port Bay. And we're very fortunate this morning to have Dr Tim Smith joining us from um, Warrnambool. Tim, how are you going? Uh, Good, thank you. That's good to hear. Now you've just been involved in a a large study, an interdisciplinary study, I gather, with various different groups looking at the health of seagrasses in Port Phillip Bay. Can you tell us a little bit about why you got into that and what is, what's some of the data that's been coming out of it? So um, it was a basically a, a yeah really big study across lots of
2: different groups. So there was our group at Deakin, there was a group at um, Melbourne Uni, a group in Sydney, um, and a group part of the EPA worked on it as well. And so basically it was looking at, trying to look at the reasons that seagrass comes and goes in Port Phillip Bay and, and um, why trying to look at ways it'll recover and, you know, there's been lots of fluctuations over the last 70 years in the amount of area of or the amount of seagrass in Port Phillip Bay and so we're sort of trying to untangle the, the reasons why it comes and goes and,
1: and how it's going to recover. Is, I'm aware there's a couple of different species. There's Zostra and there's Amphibolus or Amphibolus is another one. Were you looking at one particular um, so species? We, we focus on uh, Zostra nigricolis which is the
2: sort of subtitle Zostra. So is that the one that's kind of strappy and thin? Uh, yeah, it's got like a, a black, a black stem, a woody sort of stem. So not like Amphibolis where it sort of grows on the, um, in the sort of, nearly the surf zone on the rocks. Yeah, um, it's sort of in the more protected areas. But it's yeah, it's got a, a long stem, sort of that it can be up to almost a meter long, and then it's got the leaves on top. But it's often quite short as well. It's not usually that
1: long. How much do we know about the the basic biology of of zostera and seagrasses in general, particularly in this in this part of the world? So,
2: for a long time, when we started this project, we knew a lot about what lived in the seagrass. Um, we sort of knew where it was, but the actual biology we didn't know much about. And most of the stu- there was a, only a couple of studies, sort of in Western Port and Port Phillip Bay, looking at uh, Zostra in the early eighties. Um, looking at growth rates, and then that was about it. So a lot of the stuff we've looked at has been reproduction, um, differences around the bay, the effects of nutrients, um, the effects of sediment. Um, and so we've got a much, much better idea now of, of the bi- just the basic biology, which we didn't we didn't know beforehand. Because they
1: are, of course, flowering plants, as I, as I think I mentioned before. So how do they... I mean, they must get together. Boys and girls get together. I mean, is this floating in the in the sea? So the the, the pollen is does that float around and then and then get to the to the female flowers? Yeah. So I guess um, they're
2: uh, monoecious. So they've got both the the male and females are in the same. <laughs> in the same flower they've got yeah okay. so the bisexual flowers yeah like. yep. yep. and then so um, yeah they basically just release pollen into the water the sort of the flowers sit near the, the surface of the water and they release them and it just floats across um, there's been some studies in different species and the, the pollen can actually travel quite a long way so because seagrass is a clone it's, it can be clonal you can have one plant that can be quite large so like mm-hmm. you know tens, fifteens, metres um, and so the pollen can actually spread further than that into plants that in a into different um clones i guess and so it's not the same
1: individual so the pollen yeah it sort of so flows. if we're looking if we go to, down to the water and we're snorkeling and we see a patch of seagrass and it might be like you know many many square meters around that represents one clone or one individual with lots of different stems in it or Ooh. many individual plants of different genotypes or genetic makeup uh this was one of the really
2: interesting things that we found in our study so it Around Port Phillip Bay, it depended where you were. So if we were in areas like the Geelong Arm or Swan Bay, we found and and even over at Gowry, yeah, really, really high levels of um, like lots of individuals. So, um, you know, every every individual we sampled was a unique individual.
1: Right. Whereas, so they had a different genetic makeup to the one next to it. Yeah.
2: Whereas when we were in, so some of the a little bit of seagrass that's around Port Lonsdale, or some further up in the north, and over at Ricketts Point, um, it was it was quite low, down to like 50%. So only one in every two. And then we also did a few samples we took from Apollo Bay and uh, Portland, and they were really low. So at Portland, I think it was um, like it was 10% were unique individuals. So the
0: majority of them were clones. So there was only like one or two. Um, different plants down there is there any reason for that like is there particular environmental conditions that might up- favor only one clone so this is one of the things that we've
2: just started to dip into um and we think yes i mean if what we found was that the sites that had lots sort of produced lots of flowers and seeds had lots of Um, unique individuals so that makes sense Um, and so if you have those conditions say in the Geelong Arm it's really big seagrass patches it's really nice um, and protected and they produce lots and lots of seeds and so um, because you've got those conditions you have lots of individuals if we look at sites particularly probably um, over at Ricketts Point or even the sites like Apollo Bay and and, uh, Portland they've only been recently colonised well, the Papala Bay and Portland ones, they're in sort of the harbours down there. So they've probably only been there for maybe 50, 60 years. Um, and so it's only just been colonised. So it might have been colonised by one or two plants. And so it's there's only those clones have just grown. Mm. And so they've taken over. And then similar, probably over at Ricketts Point, you know, it's... It's quite a long way from the rest of the seagrass. It's quite isolated in Port Phillip Bay. So it's probably just colonised that area and then grown. You know, a few fragments have grown or it's it's produced a few seeds, but
1: those couple of clones have dominated and and grown vegetatively. So do the seeds, well, presumably they do float, but that's the main method of dispersal of getting new individuals around? Yeah. um, So the seeds are pretty small they're only a
2: few mil and actually they're negatively buoyant so they drop to the bottom so there's not much dispersal from the seeds but what we found is that the fragments can actually so a bit of seagrass breaks off and it can float for we did some tests and after three months we still had some that were actually growing that were floating in the the um, experiments we did that and they were still surviving like living and and so we expect that they can last for we don't know how long but you know a long period of time so a fragment floating around the water and then that will find another place settle down and then and and then there's the potential for the fragments to be carrying seeds as well if it's in Mm -hmm. the right time of year and then that could disperse the seeds so the sort of the seeds don't actually disperse i couldn't imagine more than you know 10 10 meters max but if they're on a
1: if they're attached to a fragment or a fragment can disperse yeah Okay. And I know, I know a big part of the study is looking at the resilience and that is how they come back after some kind of damaging environmental event has happened. What, what's the main... What What have you learned from this? Um, a, a couple of different things. And one
2: of the really, I guess, important things, and i mentioned it before, was that just around the bay it, it varied with sites. Mm-hmm. So the recovery really varied. We didn't find any regional differences but site differences. So... Um, Sites so like South Swan Bay and Point Richards took a long time to recover. Um, whereas some of the other sites were, within two months, the, the seagrass that we, we cut had grown back to the same size it was when we started. So in some sites it grows really quickly and in other sites it takes a bit longer. And I think it has it has a lot to do with environmental conditions and that might even be um, variable over time as well, so if we did it at a different time, it might, those sites might swap around a bit. Right. So they normally grow in s- sandy bottoms, is it? So yeah, gen- generally sandy bottoms. It it grows best in the really protected areas, so one of the, this wasn't part of our work, but um, Alistair Hurst did some work and they modelled, or, and, and Randall Lees at the EPA, modelled where that you expect the seagrass to um, be in Port Phillip Bay based on physical conditions, so mm-hmm. like wave heights and and basically all the west and the west coast and the sort of the the western part of Port Phillip Bay there was you'd expect seagrass and that's basically because it's protected from the winds. And so these areas they're sort of we divided into two areas, the areas that had like muddy sediments, so like Swan Bay and um, the Cryo Arm and, and Jong Arm. And then the areas where it's sandy, so in like Plegarie and Rosebud and Point um, Edwards around
1: um, St Leonard's and up towards Eltona and that. Okay. And so when there's, when there is a disturbance, that disturbance which rips out an existing bed of seagrass, that will be like adverse weather, really bad storms, when you get like churning near the near the bottom. Yep, so I mean there's a, there's a host of different um,
2: disturbances, and one of them definitely is changes in the weather conditions. So if you get um, big uh, waves, then you know it can tear up the seagrass and, and that's, that's a big cause or sediment being shifted and covering the seagrass, um, but also like, you know, boat anchors and um, like tearing, like mechanical te- tearing through the um, seagrass and then things like just eutrophication like where you get lots of epiphytes and it might just smother the seagrass and it
1: just dies. Right, okay. You, you mentioned to me um, a little while ago when we were talking during the week that there's a very interesting connection with Chile. And yeah. Can you just walk us through this rather than me kind of <coughs> preface it too much? It's, it's a fascinating story. So, like us to so the, the taxonomy of Zostra has been really
2: confusing, especially the southern Australian Zostra. And so, there's on the South American coast, there's basically three patches of seagrass on the whole coast. Um, and so, three, and they're in Chile. Um, and it was this originally classified as the same as we've got here then they changed it and then we thought well we'll go over and have a look and, and see what we think it is and we got over there and it was you know it's the same species and we took some samples and we we came back and so there's yeah there's these three patches they're not very big um and what we found was that they were basically there's only two clones there
1: in the three patches so two of the patches were one clone and the third patch was a separate clone so these are separate like so, genotype so they're yep. identical it's like you're know, Yep, every sample we said. took
2: was yet yep. exactly the same. So there's we we wondered how did it get there. So obviously it's been introduced twice and it's from Australia somehow. It's been introduced twice, and then they've just grown from there.
1: Um, and so we've sort of started to wonder what, how yeah, how it got there. So there's no... Just to stop you for a minute, when you say they've been introduced from Australia, so there's no room for doubt. It's like forensic testing that you've done on this, isn't it? So it's like, you know, one in 10 billion chance that it could be from anyone else but one of these individuals yeah. in Australia. Well, yeah... It's given rise to these populations in Chile. Yeah, I, What's happened is because there's like it's
2: that species isn't found anywhere else other, Nicholas, other than Australia. Yeah. And these three populations in Chile, and there's some yeah some genetic testing and it basically says it's it's a reasonably recent introduction, introduction okay. which might be thousands of years, but it's reasonably recent. Um. So how would they get there? So how did they get there? <laughs> yeah, that's that's the question. It's got to have travelled all the way across the Pacific somehow. Um. And so we, what I did is I went to the library and spent quite a lot of time looking at the shipping records, which was hours yeah, of fun. <laughs> <laughs> what a nice thing to do! <laughs> yeah, um, and we sort of, so we looked at the ships. So there's about, <coughs> excuse me, about um, 600 ships have gone from Sydney, Melbourne, and um, Hobart between. So it was first found over there in 18. 18- 64 mm-hmm. as well. So, you know, Australia... Well, that's the
1: first record of it.
2: First record, yeah. Yep. So Australia had been colonised for 80 years. Yeah. So, you know, 600 ships, they used to... They didn't have ballast water back then, so that was all um, coal or, or um, just... They used to just put waste in there sort of just to balance the ships up. So, you know, it couldn't have gone there, so it would have had to been stuck on the outside. So that's sort of unlikely, two to three months. The other option we looked at was drift times and the shortest drift time we could get was about two years um and you know we know that it can float for three months and still be alive but two years is you know quite (laughs) unlikely as well so um yeah we we sort of we're we're still putting a bit of it together to actually make an an
1: educated guess on what we think it was but there there is another possibility i mean like Aboriginal people. I mean, a, a long time ago. I mean, I don't know what evidence there is of people from Australia making it's, their way across the Pacific. I should. That's an interesting thing I need to read up on. Way, but, I'm j- yeah. but I'm just kind of wondering about that right now. I mean, there are sort of it's, indirect lines of evidence to say that people from Polynesia got to the west coast of the United States.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But are are there any in in between sites, between Australia and Chile. It's just well, Australia, just Chile. Well, that will that, that will be my ultimate field trip. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess the other
1: question <laughs> is... is your ultimate I'll, yeah, come. Yeah, yeah. I'll come too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think you need consultants on that one. <laughs> we need to look after you. We have a, bri- a broad depth of experience in, <laughs> in marine biology in general. <laughs> just before you go, the other question, which is in my mind, if there are only three populations of, of zostera in South America, and, and you said... This this is in Chile. So are there three populations just on the west coast, or if you take the if you circumnavigated the continent of South America, you wouldn't find any other populations of seagrass. Oh, so sorry, just on the west coast. On the west coast. So right? on the east coast, or in, um, Brazil and up in the north, they've got lots of tropical species. Um, okay, but they're entirely different. Totally it's not different. different. Not zostra Yeah, no. Okay, it's so different. what if they've been there at least since 1864? I think you said. What what has stopped them spreading further up and down the coast? that's that's a that's a really good question and i think it's probably just um
2: suitable sites suitable locations so um the west coast of chile is pretty exposed there's lots of sort of cliffs and the sediments not great it's sort of more rocky mm-hmm. um and so i think it it's more finding suitable sites um and i mean like t- how did it get find the suitable sites that it got to like yeah you know, it's such a it's that's such a, a cool
1: story a cool mystery
2: yeah yeah it's it's just so like the chances are so small it's um it's pretty amazing but yeah so i don't
1: i think it's just suitable locations is why it hasn't sort of found anywhere else to to um inhabit well, I wish you luck in getting lots of funding to explore all these different possibilities and do a you know, a, a trip which is... Um, we're here accompanied by Dr. Silver <laughs> Beach through the Pacific looking at all of this. We'll help you write the grant. Yeah, mm. yeah, it sounds good. <laughs> We've been talking to Dr. Tim Smith from Deakin University's Warrnambool campus about seagrasses in Port Phillip Bay and the possible connection with South America. You're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. Triple And if you can hear it kind of... It almost annoying. sounds like a helicopter. It's not our heartbeat hovering it's, it's, over us. It. It's, it's jackhammers outside up here in East Brunswick. They're doing a lot of
0: roadworks. It's actually stopped now, but um, yeah, if you're driving up Nicholson Street or Blyth Street, it's shut. Yeah, so if you're going the tram to tramway, going to series anywhere like that, beware. Mm. There's
1: a lot happening. Um, sailing, we have um, Captain Windshift, our very own sailing correspondent, on the blower from Brighton. How are you going, Captain?
3: Very good, thank you, Dr Beach. Good morning.
1: Good morning to you. Windy down there? I don't think so. Uh,
3: no, beautiful morning, no wind.
0: <laughs> There'd be a bit more bobbing going on than sailing. Yeah, we might be. It's not paddling. looking good. Yeah, not looking good.
3: It's, um, at the moment, we've got a next-to-non-existent northerly, and it's going to become a next-to-non-existent southerly a bit later on. So. That's a shame, <laughs>
1: because you're there for a, um, a pretty interesting, important-sounding regatta.
3: Yes indeed, Um, Brighton Yacht Club has, over previous years, has been running a thing called Bliss, which is Brighton Ladies Skipper Series, and um, the idea behind it was to get women skippering boats, there's a lot of women crewing on boats in recreational sailing, but a relatively low number actually skippering, so they thought they'd do something about it.
1: And And, uh, so today's the regatta for that?
3: Yes, yesterday was our first day, and um, today's the second day of the regatta, Pretty exciting actually. We had a lovely day yesterday.
1: Many many entrants? Have you got lots of lots of boats if you know people do get on the water with the wind?
3: Yeah, no, it's it's been really good. The um the entire clubhouse was packed afterwards. I was surprised how many people were there. This year's um the first year that the uh, bliss regatta has had our type of boats. So previously it's always been keelboats, large boats. And this year they invited um, our lot, which is the little skip, little boats, the off the beach boats.
1: And I guess we should remind the listeners that you uh, you, you specialise in um, little boats in dinghies, so things which yes don't do. have keels, which That's people can awesome. get out on very easily, as opposed to having to you know spend a large amount of money and get a crew to have a keel boat.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think one of our boats would pay for you know a sail bag on one of these other big boats. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, we have fun.
1: <laughs> but the little boats, they still require, I mean, you can sail them with one person, but they you, you can, I mean, many of them do require two people, don't they?
3: Yeah, a lot of them do. Uh, for example, my boat, I've got my boat down here, I'm crewing today and yesterday, and Cecile, one of our laser sailors from my club, Port Melbourne, is skippering for me, and um, yeah, we're going well. We're currently second in the series, and we're going to try and win today.
1: <laughs> so it started yesterday. You had a lot of racing yesterday, and hopefully you'll do some more
3: today. Yes. Uh, yesterday we got three races in, had a really nice day, and uh, hopefully we'll get something today, but it's not looking very flash.
1: Mm. So how did all this come about? I mean, the the, the the Bliss Regatta, can you just take us through the history of it a little bit?
3: Yeah, so um, as, as I was saying, you know, that we've noticed that there's very few recreational skippers, female recreational skippers. There's, there are there, there's plenty of them, but the numbers are definitely disproportionately skewed towards men. And so they thought, let's do something about it. And a keen bunch of women got this series going several years ago, and they had a reasonably good take-up, but again, not as good as they'd like. So they did a bit of an informal survey of people, and said, so why aren't there more women sailing, skippering? and one of the main things that came back was well lack of training <laughs> and um so the, the organizers went okay well, we'll knock that one on the head and they organized to get one of australia's best coaches and included two full days of training in the regatta set very and everybody nice turned up and
0: it was just brilliant <laughs> <laughs> and uh, is this just a once a year event or do you have a, a summer series as well
3: No, this is this particular regatta, the Bliss Regatta, where they insist that the boats must be skippered by women. That's the whole point of this. You can have male crew, but you have to have a woman skippering the boat. So this regatta is just once a year.
1: Cool. And is it going to happen next year, do you
3: reckon? Oh, the enthusiasm, I tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Um, There's been huge smiles all over the place. It's been brilliant.
0: And if someone's interested in going next year, who should they contact?
3: I think the easiest way to do it would be to, um, to Google Bliss Brighton.
1: As it, so it says B-L-I-S-S or are we That's missing it, the I? Yeah, so it
3: stands is... for Brighton Ladies for uh, the series. Uh, but if they Google Bliss Brighton. There's a really good website for it, lots of information, um, and the people organising it are incredibly helpful. So if someone wanted to get involved, we'd just get in touch with them, and I'm sure they'd put them in touch with someone.
1: There we are, we've pulled up, Kent pulled it up for us on the web already, there oh, it did is. did it pop
3: up okay? Did I yes. do the right Google search? Excellent. Yeah, Royal, Royal Brighton Yacht Club. The, the Royal, <laughs>
1: Bri- Royal Brighton Yacht Club. No, 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 no. I, I've, stopped, I've so-
3: stopped using nasty terms, these people have been absolutely fabulous.
1: <laughs> I <laughs> will stop doing that.
3: <laughs> I know, it's tempting, though.
1: <laughs> so what, what what else is happening in the sailing world for you at the moment besides this?
3: This time of the year is um, when all the summer sailors pack their gear up and go off and do other things, and all the tragics, like myself, get into winter training.
1: And winter training involves pumping iron in the gym, or...?
3: No, 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 we rug up and go sailing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just trying to get our boat tuning better and get systems worked out better and work on movements and things like that, just so we can sail better when we're in competitions.
1: God, your dedication astounds me, Steve. That's fantastic.
3: Uh, Well, you know, the truth is it's lots of fun.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I, I yeah, I do get that just a little bit I've done with you has been um very, very exciting and reminds yeah, me we should get down and do it. And I suppose looking ahead towards the end of the year, we do have um learn to sail day again coming up i guess can people we kind of put that do. in their diaries now if they're thinking about that or
3: yeah now if i had my acts together i'd have the actual date i believe it is sunday november 18. i'll double check that and let you know well that is a long way away isn't it
1: yeah it's six months yeah, but we shall. So keep that'll
3: going. be that'll be the, the first time that people who haven't sailed before will be able to get out and go to discover sailing day which is always a hell of a lot of fun
1: yeah Captain, thank Sorry. you very much for um, taking time. Well, before we go, is there, are there any um, any skippers there that feel like saying hi and yeah, telling us about I how it's going? I'm
3: casting my beady eyes around at the moment. Trying to find I'm just slackers. I don't know. <laughs> I'm here, both rigged. I'm ready.
1: They're probably all up in the have bar. skipper.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. No, they're not here. Okay. Doesn't, that's not very good, is it? Mm.
1: Oh, well. And if anyone wants to go down and watch, it's going to be pretty difficult, I guess, because Regattas are generally quite a way offshore. So
3: Yeah, it's it's a nice case of sitting around watching specks in the distance, unfortunately.
1: So even if one took oneself out to the very tip of the Brighton Pier, you couldn't see much?
3: Oh, no. Actually, um, they're, they're running the races relatively close in. So walking out the Brighton Pier, you would actually get a good view of it. Which will be, in this case, a good view of boats drifting around in circles. <laughs> I think the way the we
1: go. Well, that's all
0: right. I mean, they, but most people go fishing just for the, you know, just for the, the very the,
1: the experience of being by the water. Yeah, and we're very get,
0: zen and relaxing. You can get an ice cream and watch the boats bob around. Yeah, absolutely. It's be a beautiful no. day for it. God, I want to do that this afternoon. It's <laughs> it just
3: fantastic It's actually It's an absolutely beautiful day.
1: And we can have a whiskey together after it's all over.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a good plan.
1: (laughs) Yeah, let's do that. Thank you very much, Steve.
3: Pleasure. Have a good day.
1: Yeah, we shall. Okay,
3: see
1: you. Toodaloo. That was um, our very own Captain Windshift, who normally reports from the Port Melbourne Yacht Club, the Working Man's Sailing Club, but today is down at um, the Brighton Yacht Club reporting on Bliss, the women's regatta, the women's skippers
0: regatta. And I, um, I I think we should congratulate ourselves, Dr Beach, for really pretty much refraining from any Brighton comments. I it said, was difficult. I, I said nothing disparaging about Brighton. No. <laughs> you went to school there. <laughs> Briefly. Briefly. <laughs>
3: This is Tony Barber. Do you like fish? Or maybe marine invertebrates? Listen to Radio Marinara for all things wet and salty. Sundays at 9am on 102.7
1: Three rrr Radio Marinara, all things wet and salty. You've been threatening to tell us about
0: swells and the origins of them. And look, um, this is actually... um, Because of our age, Dr Beach, we're interested in what happened in the Second World War because our, both our fathers were involved. Yeah. And it was um, a time of great uh, conflict but also great innovation. And this is a as, story... As often happens. Yes. Adversity you know, creates... Come out of... Whatever. Yeah. but And this is a, a classic story. Uh, it's if For those of you who are interested in... And I'll do this first because I often forget to do this until the end. But for those of you who want more information, this is, comes from a fantastic book called The World in the Curl. C-U-R-L, mm-hmm. by Peter Westwick and Peter Neuschul, N-E-U-S-H-U-L. It's available on Amazon and it's a collection of stories about surf, surf science and those sorts of things. And this is about where did surf forecasting originate and how and why. I didn't even realise we could predict surf that well. I, th- I thought we the can. prediction of yes. swells was a pretty... Damn hard thing to do. Well, it may well be hard, but in in the modern age that we live in, it's pretty accurate. Uh, and there are a couple of sites uh, on the web, one called Swellnet and the other one called Coastal Watch, and there's probably a few more. Another another one called um, Seaweed something or other. Um, But they have surf forecasts, and they go up to about five days. You can get a longer surf forecast if you you subscribe, but being cheap, I don't do that. (laughs) And they are pretty accurate in that they will tell you the days when the big swells are coming. They're not that accurate with regard to size, because that varies depending on what coast you're on and what beach you're on. But as far as the time when the swells are going to come, they're they're actually pretty good. Um, Every now and again, you'll get a little pulse that'll come through that they won't predict, which is great if you're down there. But the upside of it is you can now plan your week pretty much around this is the day. And these are the two days when the swell is going to be what I want, and I can go to my favourite beach and surf them. The downside is, everybody does it, and so well, e- everybody looks at the sites yeah, and they know. So, the so every, every dog in out on the water. When I was a tacker, you had to be able to read the isobars in the um, the weather forecast in the Herald, yeah. and, and if you knew how to do that, you could predict, you know, within plus or minus a day when the big swells were going to arrive. Um, so as well as gener-
1: generated by some kind of weather you know, event, which is a long way
0: out to sea. Let me read my oh, all right, you. I'll let you do your you <laughs> your exactly. thing in, in answer to your question, waves are uh, generated by wind speed and direction blowing over what's called a fetch, which is an area. Okay. And the duration of that blow. They can also, I mean, be very dramatically generated by some kind of geological event very rarely. Like, you know, yeah like yeah. an earthquake which they will then give us a tsunami They can but we're not talking about that no so prior to about 1940 those three things that i just mentioned weren't um correlated with waves and wave size okay what were those three things again i've got a very short term wind, wind I mean. speed and yep. the direction of the wind yeah the fetch which is the area that that wind is blowing over yeah and the time the duration that the Okay. And so basically the longer that makes sense. I get the that. longer a strong wind blows over a large area, the bigger the swell. And the other thing to to note is that once a swell is generated and it moves through the ocean, it doesn't lose a lot of its size. It it can flow through water without diminishing. Anything to do with the depth of the water? No, because these are these are very deep ocean. Events. Yep. Once the, the swell comes to the coast and the water depth lessens, that's when the, it slows down yep. and it tends to go up because, because of so, the so physics of the movement. So that's, that's when the, the swell elevates, that's yeah. when you start to actually And then get a it wave. gets to a stage where the, the, um, the, the water is so shallow that the wave actually starts toppling over and that's when it breaks. That's that's the physics of, of, of wave. But as far as wave motion goes, what happens is these winds blow, 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 blow. And they, as the swells move through deep ocean, they organise. So they become lines. And the longer they move, the further they move, the more organised they become. And, and the really good swells that we're after are the, are the ones with what are called... Uh, they have a period, a long period swell. In other words, it's about 17 to 20 seconds between waves. That was that, my next question. That, like, how, what determines the distance but what the time between that, waves? That means shore? it's called a ground swell, and that comes from a long, long way away. And in our case, they come from down in the southern Antarctic Ocean. That's a and great thought, isn't it? You've got these waves coming up from Antarctica. Hold that thought, Dr Beach, because I've got a really interesting thing about how far wave trains travel at the end of this talk. So basically what happened is prior... At the end of this talk? Where's your PowerPoint? Yes, PowerPoint. This is why I'm gabbling. <laughs> so quickly, the origin of surf forecasting goes back to 1941 and the Scripps Institute in La Jolla, as mentioned. There Just was, near San Diego? That's right. There were two... Um, gentlemen involved, one an Austrian and one a Norwegian. Neither of them surfed because basically very few people surfed back in the 1940s and they were working for Particularly for a landlocked country like Austria. They were working for the US Army Air Corps and one of these guys, Walter Monk, was his name, went down to North Carolina and observed the Marine Corps amphibious craft exercise on a beach and found and saw that the swell was about six foot and most of the amphibious landing craft Capsized. So he came up with the idea that you couldn't really uh, land large numbers of troops on a beach in swell that was over five feet. That seems like a pretty obvious idea. And just remember when we are here, we're in 1941, and landing large numbers of troops on beaches was a top priority. This is how we were. we, the Allies, were going to take back and win the war. Well, yeah, D-Day, Omaha Beach, right. all of that. Then, then he was joined by a young Norwegian called Harold Sverdrup. And like they, can, you, can you do that again? Sverdrup, S-V-E-R-D-R-U-P. Okay. And they formed the Scripps Wave Forecasting Unit. And their first task was to try and work out what the swell size was going to be for Operation Torch, which was the, uh, the landing of a large number of troops on the northwest coast of Africa near Casablanca in November 1942. Now, unfortunately, they got it wrong. They collated the the MET data at the time and for the first time they connected the MET data uh, with swell size on specific beaches. But what happened was... They got it wrong, and a six-foot-plus swell was breaking around Casablanca at the time of the landing, and 68% of the landing craft sank before they reached the beach. So Um, it was a disaster from that point of view. But what happened was... Those two guys kept their jobs after that? They did keep their jobs, and the top brass, from Churchill downward Mm. and Eisenhower, said, we've got to do something about this, because they already had D-Day on their mind. Perhaps they shouldn't have had an Austrian on the job. We have to fix it. And in 1943, those two spent a great deal of time refining their models, but more importantly, they started running surf forecasting courses for Army and Navy meteorologists, and over 200 graduated. And they started forecasting uh, wave size throughout the Pacific and in the Atlantic theatres. Now, importantly, two graduates from that course, John Crowell and Charles Bates, Charles Bates. From, well, well, well. from um, the English Navy. But they're also I he was he was from Brighton, I think. No, I think they were American. They they were given the rather daunting task of forecasting the swell for D Day. And they were actually considered so important they were located in Churchill's personal bunker in London in a converted underground tube station. I've been to that. So they predicted large waves for Monday, the June June five. 1944, which was the day that D-Day was going to be run. And they actually persuaded um, Eisenhower, that information, not them personally, persuaded Eisenhower to postpone the D-Day invasion for a day, even though most of his generals wanted to delay the landing for another two weeks so they get back to the original low tide um, uh, cycle. Thankfully, Eisenhower made the right decision and only delayed for a day until Tuesday, June the 6th, because in two weeks hence, the waves on Omaha Beach, for example, were 12 foot. Not that that was predicted by Crowell and Bates, but that's what would have happened. And when I read that, I thought, I think I'd better make a visit to Omaha Beach. (laughs) (laughs) I never realised the swell was that big. (laughs) Anyway, it was a success. They, They landed, as we know, on Tuesday, June the 6th. The swell side was... Size was two to three foot, and from that perspective, it was a success. This success gave them greater resources, and um, from Churchill and Eisenhower, and they con- they continue to develop wave forecasting models for the Pacific and Japan. And just think of how many islands were um, in, were uh, not invaded, what? but what? taken back by the the U.S. and the Australian. Um, Forces, yep. and each and every one of them needed a wave model to, d- to decide which day we're going to to land on this island to minimise losses on the actual landing. And then, just finally, in 1967, Walter Monk made a documentary called Waves Across the Pacific, and this was this followed a Scripps Institute experiment, and they charted a swell from the deep South Pacific all the way to Alaska. Uh, so that swell moved all the way from the South Pacific, ways well, around New Zealand, all the way up to Alaska. Oh. And, it, and it showed that open ocean waves do do not decay in size and power. You mentioned before that, I mean, that this is all the very end. fascinating, Dr. Surf, <laughs> and I thank you
1: very much for that for that, that learned um, lecture you've given us. It was beautiful. But you, you say our waves come up from Antarctica, and, of course, we have Tasmania in the middle. So mm. do they just kind of wrap around Tassie and then come sneak well, into Well, that's, that's where Strait?
0: Swell Angle comes into it swell angle you've got to have the right angle so that it goes through that little window to the west because they're coming from the west and they they've got to go through the angle between Tasmania and us and and certain parts of uh, our coast are, are screened by Tasmania but generally waves will go round Tasmania and then meet again but but the actual the having to go round Tasmania excuse me diminishes their size and power so you want them to come through that window. And it's generally recognised that if you get a, a solid swell of a, a, a direction about 200 degrees, mm-hmm. that's the one, because it'll come straight through and, and hit the Bell's Torquay area at just the right angle. Deeply fascinating.
1: I've learnt a lot. Good. You know, I don't know much to start off with, so it's easy to teach me a lot. And now I've but given away some trade <laughs> secrets. Yeah, so everybody will be out there <laughs> just, now.
0: Just forget about that 200 degrees bit. Yeah, and yeah, well, you never heard of that website. No. Oh, I think everyone has. But it, look, they're very accurate now, and it's just interesting to know it's been going on for over 70 years. Wow. Mm.
1: It's been a fun show. You've been listening to Radio Marinara to Doctors Beach and Surf, and we have had joining us in the studio Dr Tim Smith. Thank you very much. From um, Queenscliff. I mentioned he was at Warnable, but he's been working out of Queenscliff telling us about seagrasses. And also thanks to Captain Windshift for reporting in from the Brighton York Club next week. It's going to be Dr Bron Burton in the studio uh, with my good self, and we are looking forward to interviewing Australia for Dolphins about what has happened recently at Taiji.
0: Sayonara. See you later.